Hey, if you're just joining us, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, boy, thanks for coming. We're always honored uh, when, when somebody comes and shows up at our church. We just count you as a trust given to us from God, whether you're here sitting in the seats or we've learned that a lot of people uh, before they come here just listening to us online. So if you're listening to my voice, thank you for checking us out. And uh, we hope that uh, what we talk about today will help you have a greater understanding of what it means to be deeply rooted with God and, uh, and to take the next best step for you and your relationship with him. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his thought-provoking and enlightening uh, little booklet called The Screwtape Letters, um, he unpacks a story in a way that's super interesting to me. Uh, how many of you have read Screwtape Letters, by the way? Okay, so great. You know... Uh, it's, it's a book uh, that is written metaphorically of, uh, you know, how Satan might work in the world today. And so it could appear today like an email thread, really, uh, between uh, two people. There's uh, Screwtape, which is a salty, experienced tempter, and he's writing to his apprentice, Wormwood, and he's telling him how to crash this new human patient he calls him, who has uh, recently become a Christian. And I love, uh, this is an excerpt from early in the book. Uh, he writes, My dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. Do not indulge the hope that you will escape the usual penalties. I love that. Indeed, in your better moments, I trust you would hardly even wish to do so. In the meantime, we must make the best of the situation. There's no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. Um, we're in a series right now called Deeply Rooted, and we're paralleling an accompanying 10-week study called Rooted, which is all about what does it mean to have deep, deeply a deeply rooted faith, and, and how can we do that? And so today, we're going to talk about something that's not my favorite topic. In fact, I, I got to tell you, like, I hate giving a Sunday to this topic. I just, I, I, I'm not going to say his name. I'm going to use code. It's like, I, it just bums me out we even have to talk about this. But I think it's really important for anyone who is wanting to have a deeply rooted faith to, to realize uh, what you're up against. So uh, for some of you, this might be review. Uh, hopefully uh, you learned something through this process. But here's what we're going to do. I, I, we're going we're gonna to talk about the profile of our enemy. And then I'm going to talk about two things that I think are really critical in understanding his strategies against us and how we can combat against that. So a lot of scripture, a lot of points. If you have the note sheet, you see there's a lot of fill-ins. So again, buckle up. And stick with us, okay? If you get lost, uh, the notes are filled in online, uh, and they accompany uh, the sermon when we, when we post that. So a profile of our enemy. First of all, he is believed to be an angel who rebelled against God, an angel who rebelled against God. And I say believed because the passages in which we talk about, or the Bible talks about Lucifer and being a, a fallen angel, uh, are most literally interpreted to be uh, referencing the king of Babylon. And yet there's a double meaning 
with that. Uh, he is known as a bearer of light and, uh, you know, his essential uh, cause of falling away and rebelling was pride. In, in one of the texts that's on your notes, uh, he says five times, I will, I will, and that's in direct opposition to, uh, uh, you know, God's will. So he rebelled against God. Secondly, the, our enemy has broad but limited power. Broad but limited power. First uh, John 5:18, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. The whole world is under his control. And so he has broad power, but he's limited. Uh, limited, first of all, because we read in the oldest book in your Bible, Job, in Job 1, uh, he appears before God to ask permission to wreak some of the havoc uh, that he wreaks. Also, he can be resisted. James 4, 7 says to submit yourselves then to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So he can be resisted. He's not completely overpowering. And, you know, the truth is he won't waste his time uh, on people who are aware. And he looks for easy targets. And limited because I don't believe that he can, he can force himself on people. I think, though, that he can prompt us. And I think in most cases, he gets far too much credit for what he does. And um, so he can prompt, but he cannot force himself on us. Another thing you should know about our enemy is that he's not omniscient. That means he's not all-knowing. He's a fallen angel, as we understand. And as such, he's limited in his knowledge. He's a super being as an angel. But do you know that angels don't know everything? They're not omniscient. First uh, Peter 1.12, Peter is talking about the salvation that comes to human beings through grace, and he says even angels long to look into these things. In other words, angels don't completely understand the redemption of humans because they've never experienced it. And so we're one up on them. So uh, he is so-and-so doesn't know... Um, he doesn't know everything. He doesn't know our thoughts. But he's, he's very intelligent, and he can observe what we do. Our enemy also directly opposes God, John 10.10. 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, and I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. These are the words of Jesus. And here Jesus refers to our enemy as a thief. And he sets up this direct opposition between the work of Jesus and our enemy's work. He says, the enemy comes only to steal and kill and destroy, and yet I have come for directly opposite reasons. I've come to bring life and a full life. Um, and by the way, the results are completely the opposite. Not just their goals, but... Uh, what happens in the end game is completely the opposite, too. So you ask, like, if, if Jesus came for this reason and the evil one came for these reasons in direct opposition, how is it that we would ever buy into that? Well, another part of the profile of the evil, evil one is that he works through deception. He works through deception. 
You know, when the Rolling Stones sang, uh, what's puzzling you is just the nature of my game in sympathy of the devil. That was exactly right on. Because he is a deceiver. He uses lies to deceive us. John 8, There is no truth in him. When he, when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and a father of lies. And the evil one causes human beings to believe lies about God, about ourselves, and about others. And in doing so, in his deception, he uses more attraction than fear. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He's not this depiction that we have of him so much. But instead, he's deceiving us by being, by appearing to be light, the thing that we're most attracted to. That's how he deceives us. And our escape from that deception is only possible when we see through the deception. 2 Timothy 2.26, that uh, Paul writes that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil. In other words, to escape the evil one's strategies, there has to be an alertness, an awareness of what it is he's trying to do. But yet we're easily deceived. How, how in the world could we ever fall prey to something that in the end is going to destroy us and take us far from God? Uh, it's because it looks good and we love it and we're out of our minds when we do it. Last uh, uh, profile of the evil one is that he's defeated by the gospel. He's defeated by the gospel. 1 John 3, 8 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus Christ came to completely destroy the work that our enemy has invested all of eternity in. In Hebrews 2.14, the writer says that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. When Jesus went to the cross, he totally destroyed Satan's intention for humanity. And again, in uh, John's apocalyptic vision called uh, the Revelation, in Revelation 20.10, as he, as he writes in his vision about what the end of the world is like, he says, the devil who deceived them, that is human beings, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. So in the end, the gospel defeats everything that he's tried to do. He loses the war. But in the meantime, we are in the battle of our lives. So, you guys still with me? Shake your head. I know, I just gave you a lot of information, like a f drinking out of a fire hose. That, that's a biblical profile of our enemy. How do we defeat such a powerful and wise yet limited enemy? Two things I want to talk about. First of all, our enemy is defeated when we're prepared. The enemy is defeated when we're prepared. You've heard this saying, uh, you know, life is 80% preparation and 2% perspiration. That's true. Um, I, I played football from the time I was a little peewee through college. And how, 
helpful would it have been to know the other team's plays before they ran them? That would be amazing. In fact, I might remember a team in the NFL that was caught figuring that out, but um, because it would be very helpful. And I don't know if you've noticed when you're, uh, if you're not an NFL fan, uh, you'll see them, uh, the coaches on camera, and they have like this laminated sheet, and they cover their mouth. That laminated sheet has the plays that they're running on it, and yet they're covering their mouth so that nobody across the field can be reading their lips as they're talking to the people that are up in the booth and others in developing their next play. But the truth is, um, we do know the other team's plays. In, in football, you do. A as a play caller on the defensive side, uh, throughout my lame and brief football career, um, I spent hours watching game films before the next contest. And we would, I had to recognize patterns, I had to recognize formations, and to know in this situation what might happen. And sometimes you knew exactly what they were going to do. And when you watch the game of football, you see a quarterback come up and then he starts saying things and you see people shifting around. What he's doing is he's recognizing the defense is set up and then you see the defense recognize what they're doing and moving around and thank God there's a little time clock that keeps, they have to stay on track and get that play run because everybody's guessing back and forth. That's what they're doing. They, they know each other's plays. They're so familiar with it. And you know, it's the same thing with our enemy. When we're prepared, we know the plays that he's going to run. And he can't outwit us when we know the play that he has. We know what's in his repertoire. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says that we are, not aware of his, we are not unaware of his schemes. It's pretty simple to figure out. In 1 John 2.16 John writes this, for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. In this simple statement, John reveals to us basically the three plays that, the, that our enemy has. There is the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. So the three plays of our enemy are these, pleasure, coveting, and pride. It's dive right, dive left, post pattern. That's all he has. He has the, and he, he uses them very effectively. He's really good at execution of those plays, but this is all he has. And basically, he takes these three things that are characteristic of every human being, and in fact, the way God has designed us, and he, he gets us to love the thing more than the giver of the thing. And then he counterfeits what God has given and, and serves up a faith. For instance, the cravings of man, pleasure. God is not against pleasure. God invented pleasure. He made our bodies to enjoy pleasure. 
whether it's sexual or food or leisure or rest, our bodies are designed to enjoy pleasure. God is not against wealth or possessions. In fact, he gives us gifts. He, he gives us the capacity to gain. And he blesses us with the intelligence and skills to move forward in life. But you know, it's true that we're much less likely to be possessed by Satan than we are to be possessed by our possessions. And so he can get us off track. And we can, through the lust of the eyes, coveting, just constantly, constantly be dissatisfied. And we find ourselves pining away for the things that other people have or the life that they have. And so we entirely miss the design that God has made us for. And we hoard and hold on to because we're just trying to catch up to the next Jones in our life. We talked about this a few weeks ago about keeping up with the Joneses. You know, fortunately, pastors are, are exempt from all of these kinds of things. <laughs> They're not, right? I mean, I don't want you to raise your hands, but how many of you, like me, every time you go on vacation, you think, this is like the place I want to live. I want this life that I just had in my weekend on vacation. And when you buy something on Amazon Prime, and then later, what, what shows up underneath there, if you bought this, you might also be interested in this. I'm like, yeah, I'm interested in all of those things. I need more. I didn't just need this. I needed all this other stuff to go with it. How much is enough? John Rockefeller said just a little bit more, right? And then God is not against us taking pride in what we do or achieving some level of significance or influence. You know, even the Apostle Paul, a human, said, follow my example. Yet, that influence that God gives us can turn into a boasting and a personal pride. And I was talking to somebody uh, just this past week, and they, they asked me the question, not knowing what we're going to talk about. It's like, what? Um, do you think God is the one that gives people influence? And I do, to some degree. I think that influence is a gift from God, and we can use that, as Jesus said, to let your light shine before men that they may glorify your Father in heaven. Or we can allow that significance that we achieve in life to be something that benefits us. And when, when it gets upside down and we start to pursue the significance rather than the one who has given it to us and using that gift, whether you're a teacher or a parent or a church member or on a team somewhere, when we start to think that, that the gifts and capacities and skills that, that I possess are the thing that gives me privilege rather than responsibility, it gets all flipped around. And that kind of pride destroys marriages and families and organizations, churches, 
in ministry teams, when we start to believe our own press and get to where we think that the, the gifts that God has given us are, they make us more important than anybody else rather than much more responsible and needed, then the third play has worked. You know, the most prideful thing that we could think is that we don't need the grace of God or that we're too far beyond the grace of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that there is no person so far from God that they cannot be redeemed by what Jesus did. And there is no person so good that they don't need it. Because in they're both the, re, the result of pride because we've established ourselves and our own thinking over and above what God has said about us clearly in his word, that he has come to seek and save the lost of this world, and every one of us is. Every one of us is broken, but we're not so broken that God can't redeem us. In the rooted curriculum that uh, you know folks are doing at our church, they talk about strongholds, and uh, that's a really like scary discussion to be in and in the group that I've been a part of we've separated into men and women's groups to talk about those places where we we sense that the evil one has a hold of us and it's like we have a pattern that we keep returning to I bet you if you think about it for just a little bit you can see how any of the strongholds that you possess they fall into one of these three categories it's either an upside-down pursuit of pleasure or it's the result of looking around and feeling like somehow you've been ripped off and that you need more. Or it's the result of just plain old pride. You know, 1 Peter 5.8, Peter writes this, that we're to be self-controlled and alert because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour and he does that with the same plays over and over and over again. You know, it's one thing to know the strategies that the evil one uses against us, but you also have to have the right equipment when you battle our enemy. So regardless of how well-informed you are, you still have to get equipped to battle our enemy. So that's what I want to, uh, that's this is our last point, and then we'll be done. Our enemy's defeated when we're equipped. Our enemy's defeated when we're prepared, but we also need to be equipped. And there's this beautiful passage of scripture that Paul wrote in Ephesians 6. He talks about our struggle with the enemy being like this epic battle. In Ephesians 6:12, he says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. That we are involved in this battle, and there's, there's a spiritual world that is going on that is beyond our sight, but it's happening. And we're engaged in that battle. And what happens in this life really matters. The way he talks about battling 
is really also a beautiful picture. He says in Ephesians 6.10 that we're to be strong in the Lord and his mighty power and to put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So he's talking about getting the right equipment on. And in verse 13, he says, as you put on the full armor of God so that the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. This is such a beautiful picture and the imagery that Paul uses is that it's of a warrior, of a soldier getting ready for battle and putting on his equipment. And I don't know if, if you know, I can't say, you know, without question that uh, to like take each little piece of equipment and associate it with something is, was Paul's intention. I think the, the picture stands in and of itself, but I do think I can see some parallels here, the way he stitches this together and the way we battle against our enemy. He, he lists equipment. There's a belt of truth. And you know, our greatest defense against lies is the truth. And from the very beginning, the evil one has been attacking those that want to pursue God with untruth. The serpent said to Adam and Eve, did, did God really say that? And he's still saying that. Uh, we, he lies to us by telling us that we're less than or that we deserve something or that there are no consequences to our choices. And when Jesus was tempted by uh, our enemy, he refuted the lies that the devil brought to him. So putting on the belt of truth is one piece of equipment that I think is super important for us. There's also the breastplate of righteousness, which is not self-righteousness, but it's living rightly before God. There's a good deal of protection from the, the tricks of our enemy if we are placing ourselves under the authority of the word of God and living rightly. And when we step outside that, we expose ourselves to all kinds of harm. He talks about our feet being fitted with the gospel. You know, when you picture a soldier, a Roman soldier at that time, you can picture all, the, all this armor that they wear and a sword, but, you know, your shoes are really important. Can you imagine how important it was to them? When, I mean, in the sandal-wearing time, how important being fitted with the right shoes. And we, we are shooed with, or we stand upon, and our, our stability is based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because your, your feet are really important. Many of uh, you are running uh, in the LA Marathon, either a half or a full, and we think about you know, our lungs and our legs and you know, our muscles being ready, but you know, people at this time, 
every last year was the same. They start to have trouble with their feet. Your feet are really important. And, you know, uh, Roman soldiers were some of the first that started, like, driving spikes through their boots so that they could grip. And we stand and move on the basis of the gospel. Paul mentions the shield of faith, which is our, the confidence that we have in God over and above what we see today. I mean, uh, he, he depicts the, the evil one shooting fiery darts at us, fiery arrows, and those are defended against with the shield of faith, which is saying, you know, I, I, I hear the temptation. I'm exposed to it. I, I don't get my situation, but I'm shielded by my trust and my faith in God and in his plan in his goodness. There's a helmet of salvation, which is, um, you know, there's no doubt a headshot means death. And one of the things that the evil one will do is he'll pick away at our understanding of what salvation truly is. And he'll, he and through false teachers will constantly pick away at the, the true grace of God which is that our salvation is based entirely on the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. Solely. And if you have thoughts that are, are taking you away from that and you're feeling like you need to earn the grace of God, that's just a helmet shot that you're receiving. There's the sword of the word of God, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And you know, in the Bible, uh, there are several words used for sword. There's one, like it's the big, you know, you picture the Roman sword where they hack away. But this is dagger. It's a much smaller sword that needs to be used skillfully and placed exactly uh, in the deadly or most, uh, you know, critical places. And so we need to be skillful with the word of God and know what God's word says so that we can defend against the lies of the evil one. And then, did you notice how in the last one, which is prayer, Paul just totally dispenses with his imagery. It's like it's the one thing he didn't fit. He had like a one, two, three, four, five, six, six point outline that all worked into his, his illustration. And he had this one thing that didn't fit. And so he didn't tie it to any weapon or you know, armor, he just said, and you should pray. And what I love about that is Paul sees how important prayer is in battling the evil one, and he doesn't feel, you know, under any kind of pressure to go, oh, yeah, I got I to gotta create a way for that to fit. Maybe it doesn't fit, but, he, but we need to know it. So it's just simply prayer. And by the way, don't forget your whole other army. You know that when we are equipped well and we are, and we are aware of the enemy's tricks, that we find much more strength in being together than to be solely on our own. And you know all the pictures of how Roman soldiers would bunch together and hold up their shields together to cover them. It's something that you cannot do on your own. And so just as we see in the animal kingdom and obviously in a, in a battle, we're much safer 
when we're in the company of people who are also aware and are also well-equipped. We benefit from that, and people have our back. And so don't let the enemy isolate you through shame or uh, through uh, darkness in your spirit or your situation. Don't let him push you away from the community of faith that can protect you even when maybe your armor isn't at its best. You know, there's a few responses we could have to our enemy. First of all, we could pretend that he's not real. I believe in a literal devil. I don't think he matches Dante's Inferno or he's not a little red uh, thing with a pitchfork and a tail, you know. I actually, my mom made me a costume for Halloween when I was a little kid. I went as a devil, which I don't know if she was trying to send me a message back then or not, but I just don't think that has anything to do with how Satan works. But we can pretend that he doesn't exist. We kind of bury our heads in the sand and just think that, well, you know, there's many other answers, you know, education and watch more Disney movies, and then, you know, it will be all butterflies and songs, you know. We can pretend like it's not a problem. Or we could do the exact opposite. We could be so overcome with evil that that's all we can see. And we can allow it to just like bring us to a dark place and, so, and, and we just get sour and cynical and all we do is look around and see all the bad things that are happening in the world and it just pulls you down. There's a good deal of grace and beauty in the world today and opportunity. We could also uh, respond to the enemy by self-righteousness. We could believe that he's here, but it's them that's under control. Are you guys sneaking up on me back there? <laughs> See, you got to be aware and alert at all times. We could, we, we could get the idea that, yeah, uh, the evil one is out there, our enemy, but he, he's like on the other side. You know, it's all those other people that have a problem with him. You know. Or we could, as we've talked about today, be aware of his presence. To be uh, prepared for his strategies. And we could be equipped to do battle and to join with others and protecting ourselves. And in so doing, then, then we are more like what Paul wrote in Romans 12, and this is, this is on your note, note sheet, where he said, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. That is the calling of the church today. It is the calling of every person who is a Christian to not allow that evil to overcome us, but to take the equipment and the callings and the awareness and the truth that God has given us and take it into the world and overcome our enemy through the grace of God. Let's pray.